We've all tried to be someone we're not at some point in our life. How can you build a relationship when you start off by being someone you're not? And how are you supposed to stand out in business if the first thing you do is fit in? Really, shouldn't we be in a world where everyone's real? Where all of the shields and the armor's down and we all just go, hey, this is me, flaws and all. I can't spell for ship, but I can solve your problem. And at the end of the day, if you can solve someone's problem, they don't care what you look like. They don't care how you sound. They care that you are the solution to that problem. The voice you just heard is Steve Sims, a man who has become a problem solver of epic magnitude. He's the visionary founder of the world's first luxury concierge service, delivering world-class personalized experiences to individuals interested in living life to its fullest. Through his ties with an A-list of remarkable achievers in life, Steve has developed a unique set of competencies and insights. He's now leveraging his expertise to help others transform their personal and professional lives and go for stupid, ridiculous goals. Despite his self-proclaimed gruff exterior, Steve is open, engaging, intuitive, and generous with his knowledge and observations. He's a guy who knows how to make things happen. I first learned about Steve through Cutco Vector legend John Rulin, and after reading his first book, Blue Fishing, I became a raving fan and follower. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with this truly unique personality. This podcast was originally created to spotlight all the ways that the Cutco Vector marketing community is changing lives throughout the world. Every so often, we bring you a friend of our community who is helping others to change their lives and can bring tremendous value to our listeners. That's exactly what you'll get today. So let's get right to it with Steve Sims. Steve Sims, thank you so much for making time to hang out with me here today. It's a pleasure. Why wouldn't I? All right. Well, uh, listen, I know that your story starts in East London, and I'd like you to take us back and tell us a little bit about that. Wow. It's not very romantic. I, I'm East London boy, left school at the age of 15. I remember seeing my college advisor who literally said, don't bother applying just go and get a job. And I was like, oh, okay, then great. So that was where my mind was. Uh, my dad owned a very small construction firm. So I left school at the age of 15, slept in one day, following day, he kicked the bed at 4.30 and said, right, you're on the building site with me. And that was it. I literally looked around thinking this was my future. But I always, like every entrepreneur, had that kind of aggravation in me that questioned and was curious enough to go, is this it? Mm. And it was that curiosity that I think fueled the next part of my journey, which was basically making every mistake you could as a young lad. But I really want to attribute one of my my first pivotal moments to my granddad. And I remember being on the building site one day and going up the ladder with a pile of bricks on my shoulder and got to the top of that ladder. There was my dad. There was his brother, my uncle, my two cousins, who seemed to spend most of our life just irritating and bullying me like cousins do. And then my granddad, who 
I don't know the exact age, but I think he was getting close. He was in his 70s, you know, getting close to 80. Big mammoth of a fella. Absolutely huge. And you knew when he walked into a room because he was like Hagrid. He was a huge Irish lad, which annoyed my dad because my dad was five foot five. I'm six feet, so I kind of got in between of those genes. But I saw my future. I Mm -hmm. saw my cousins who were older than me. I saw my dad. And then I saw my granddad. And I'm like, shit, this is it. And I remember running into my granddad at uh, the morning coffee break. And I ran up to him like an idiot, and it was raining outside, and he's trying to warm himself up inside this little caravan we had on this building site. And I ran up to him, and I'm like, Granddad, Granddad, did you ever think you'd be doing this at your age? Which, let's be honest, is a very rude, harsh question to ask an old man. He didn't even look at me. He just said, Son, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. Mm, well. And... I quit. I left I left the caravan. I walked up to my dad and I said, Dad, I gotta quit. And uh he looked at my granddad and he said, Look, we're we're pretty light handed this week. You you finished Friday. So I had to see the week out. But you know the funny thing is, my granddad died shortly after that. I never ever got the chance to say to him, Hey, if you hadn't have said those words to me, I may have still been there. Mm. But because you said what you said. I entered into a series of jobs that I was ill-qualified for. I entered into a lot of mistakes on how not to build relationships, not to communicate, to the point that, hey, I'm an author of two books and being paid a disgusting amount of money to travel the world, teaching and coaching people on how to communicate and how to go for ridiculous goals. And if it hadn't been for that first moment, who knows? I love it. I love it. Steve, I've been excited to have this conversation with you and tell you that my dad was a bricklayer. Oh, really? And he left school after about eighth grade in Italy and went to work as a bricklayer and worked with his hands his whole life. He came to the United States with a wife, a daughter, and three suitcases. That's all he had. And he started his own masonry company up here in the Bay Area. And and ended up doing quite well with that. But when I was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, those four summers, I had to work with my dad every summer yeah. on the job, carrying yeah. around bricks, carrying around concrete blocks, <laughs> cleaning up after the jobs. And Steve, I've described this to people as like one of the key days of my life. My dad took me to this job. I can still remember the street the house was on. I'm sure I could find this house if I had to today. He took me to this place where they had just finished a job. They built a retaining wall. And there was this giant mountain of gravel in the driveway that had been piled in the driveway. It was probably like chest high to me and as big as like the circumference would have been as big as like my bedroom as a kid. And he said, all of that gravel has to go behind that retaining wall, back behind it where they cut the dirt out, right? There was a gap. He's like, shovel it over the wall put it all over the wall. And I was there, Steve, for more than a full day. I had to go back the next day to finish piling that gravel over and my back was in pain. I was like, man, I am never doing manual labor. Like I am going to be really good at what I do so that I don't have to do this shit. Right. Cause uh, that was a transformative day for me as well. Yeah. You know, it was weird. I remember leaving that business and thinking to myself, my God, I never want to be that low again. I never want to be 
one of them. <laughs> and the funny thing, because I was a bricklayer and, and you know laborer and cleaner for like about three and a half years. And of course, you're right, same as you. From the age of 11, every summer, every Easter, every Christmas, I was on the building site, nine times out of 10, cleaning someone else's crap. And I thought this was the low point of my life, only to even today in my 50s, as arrogantly as successful and as, you know, the money I've got and what I've got, I reckon those are some of my best educational and formative years. And it taught me so much about not being able to get away with excuses. The job's done, as you just described, the job's done when the job's done. And I had so much education. I class myself as an educated man now. I don't believe school had anything to do with it. And I believe those formative years of not being able to hide behind an excuse, not being able to hide behind a bad back and having to get the work done, that's what built me. And I would say that anyone that is a is a craftsman, uh, masonry, works with their hands, that's a skill and I admire and I take my hat off to you. Awesome. I love hearing it. I love hearing it. Thanks very much. So you described this moment that you were just done with it. In blue fishing, you have a quote right there where you say you don't drown from falling in water, you drown from staying there. Yeah. And that's how you were feeling in that moment that, you know, it was time for you to jump out of the water and, and, and move on to new things. Yeah, you can't bitch and moan and then stay there. You know, right. it just makes no sense. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew full well that it was an aggravation and a question and some kind of quizzical in me that said, is this it? And I remember actually having an argument with my mum, which was very upsetting. You know, you never piss off an Irish lady. And she, when we quit, she said, oh, you think you're better than this. And I went, no, I don't. I just think I can do more. And I want to test myself. I want to go and see, you know, surely don't you want me to try? And she was very, very narrow minded. She was like, no, no, no. This is the family business. You stay here. And I really irritated her by breaking away from that. And of course, the daft thing was it seemed to make her happy the amount of failings I did because I knew I knew I knew how to work hard. Anyone that works with our hands, anyone in that kind of industry, any tradesman, you get cut, you get ripped off, you get beaten up, the rain hits you, the early mornings, the late nights, you know how to work hard. But I wasn't making money. So I knew how to work hard. Why wasn't I therefore wealthy, you know? And when I would go to the pub and moan about it, I'm moaning about it with other poor mindset people, you know, mm -hmm. and I knew something was off. So I knew that one of my big problems wasn't working hard. It was being in the right room. So I knew if the room I was in was full of a bunch of successful people, then I would become a byproduct of that room. So I knew very early on I needed to have conversations. Now, of course, I'm, I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s now. We didn't have Instagram to tell us how inadequate our lives were. So this was just all a gut feeling. It was something inside me that wanted more. So I went out to try and have those conversations. And I thought, if I want to have conversations with successful people, I need to surround myself with them. So I need to be in those kind of genres, you know, life insurance, financial advisor, selling expensive cars, selling expensive jets. Well, yes, you were a salesperson, but you weren't their friend. And mm. so there was never really that connection. You were merely just 
something they had to go through to get to what they wanted. And so I realized that that wasn't, I wasn't creating relationships. I was basically action in a transaction. You want that car? Hello, sir. How are you? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, give me the car. Once the transaction's done, you're done. It's like, you know, buying a McDonald's hamburger. You don't have a relationship with the person that sold it to you. So funny enough, I was still quizzical and I ended up hitting what I thought was my low point. I ended up going for a stockbroker's position in Hong Kong, getting fired after one day. And being the fact that I was born big and ugly, I ended up working on the door of a nightclub. And I thought, I've gone from being a skilled tradesman to now being paid to punch people. That was my job description. And I thought, how could I do that? But the thing is, as entrepreneurs, as self-starters, we see things differently. Me, you, the people that we spoke about before this show, the people that are listening to this, we see things differently. And I remember being on the door this day and the two other meatheads that I was with, all they wanted to do was save the blood on their T-shirt and go on with a hot girl each night. That was what they wanted. But I'm suddenly on the front of that door. I'm being given a Harvard education on human interaction. I was now seeing the people that had money, how they interacted. The people that never had money, that pretended they had money, how they acted. You know, and I could, I suddenly started to be able to read this. And as the doorman, I was like, well, hang on a minute. I know where all the new nightclubs are. I know where the premieres are. I know where the opening and the galas are because, hey, I was in that life. So I started going up to the people that had money and going, hey, are you going to the gala Friday night? And they'd be like, oh, no, I'm not. And I'd be like, do you want to? Do you want me to see if I can make it happen? Oh, could you? Now I became an asset. Now I Mm. became a solution. And so if I could get them in, yes, I was going to charge them. I'm a great believer. If they don't pay, they don't pay attention. But now I was able to form a relationship and go, look, let me see what I can do, Johnny. And I would end up doing it. And of course, now, pre-Google, I became the person they needed to know for the nightlife. And of course, that got bigger and bigger. And I went from getting people into nightclubs and restaurants that were sold out to get them into the Monaco Grand Prix and Hollywood's A-list parties. In fact, I ended up working for Elton John for eight years on his Oscar party. So the requests got bigger and bigger. I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could complete these. And I ended up working with the most powerful people in the planet. But all the time, it was never to be able to walk down a red carpet or hang out backstage or be on stage with Guns N' Roses or Elton John or anyone like that. My goal was to build a relationship so I could sit you down a week later and go, hey, did you enjoy doing that with Andrea Bocelli? Hey, did you like doing that in the Vatican? That's great. I'm glad I could be of service. But Johnny, I wanted to ask you, how do you view new relationships? How do you build new relationships? How do you look at opportunities? What do you do when someone comes to you with a proposal? How do you view it and how do you handle it? And I was looking to get into that head to see how they saw things. Because if I could get those nuggets, then I could walk off that table having them in there and suddenly start seeing life through their lens. And holy shit, 
when you start seeing life as opportunities of success, what's the only thing you see? And that's how it works. And I talk about it in my latest book, The Yellow Car Theory. When you go along to a car park or to a car dealership and you see this weird color car, you know, and you're like, that's a funny yellow or that's a funny green. What's the only color car you see as you're driving home that day? It's that that one, isn't it? So when your mind only sees opportunity, what's the only thing it sees, even in a dark day, is opportunity. And that's what I got taught. Amazing. Amazing. And this is how you became a blue fisher, as you called it. Yeah, it was was weird. It's how I, you know, I'm a great believer that if you put a sponge in a bucket of water, it's going to soak up water. If you put it in a bucket of oil, it's going to soak up oil. It soaks up the sandpit you're in. Mm -hmm. And today, that sandpit could be the news. How many times? I remember speaking to Peter Diamandis, the guy that actually founded the XPRIZE with Elon Musk, and he turned around and he said that he never watches the news in the morning because when he gets up in the morning, he's ready for the day. He's excited for the day. Why start that day by being depressed for two hours with what the news serves you? Because we know full well the news breeds negativity. Yes. There's a war here. There's famine here. There's arguments here. There's you know depression here. There's a recession here. We react to what we are fed. So why start the day being fed depression and then spending the next few hours trying to get out of that to then get into positivity? Wake up in the morning, cold plunge, work out, walk the dogs, hug your wife, go and sit on the beach and have breakfast, listen to a podcast, something like that that breeds positivity. And then what will your day encompass? Pure positivity. You are a reaction to what your mind is fed. And that was one of the biggest things I learned very early on. Yeah. Brilliant insight, Steve. I I love how this started from you observing people getting in line to come to the clubs in in Hong Kong and and noticing how do different people act? How do successful people act? What do they do? And then being able to start helping them get things they wanted, but not just having it be transactional, but working to build a relationship with these people so that you had a stronger connection that you could build on as time went on. I mean, it's just such a great and amazing and unique story of how a guy went from East End London bricklayer to living in a beautiful area of LA where you are now and doing all the things you do all across the world, man. So cool. It is kind of funny. I remember when, uh, when me and my wife got married, we got married in what you call a registry office, which is basically, it's like a DMV. It's just a government building. You just go in and you, you, you sign a couple of documents and you come out and you're married and that's it. And we did that because we never had any money. But the tune that we played at our reception in the pub was November Rain by Guns N' Roses. And it was funny that that was the beginning of our life. And then fast forward to where we are now. We've we've worked with Guns N' Roses. I've done drumming with uh, Matt Sorum. I was with him the other week in Palm Springs. And it's funny how your life actually goes full circle if you want it to. And it's it's been very it's been very strange, very fulfilling, and very humbling where I am now. Yeah, people who know you, Steve, 
I've heard describe you as the real deal. <laughs> what does that mean to you? And like, how does somebody become the real deal? I think there's this word that gets banded around at the moment, like it's some freaking uh, mouse pad slogan or should be on T-shirts and mugs, authenticity. And that pisses me off. I think what we're searching, yearning for today is clarity. Now, I am me, and I'm not going to apologize. I drink too many old fashions. I wear black T-shirts. I ride motorbikes, and I show up as this. I'm not trying to be anyone that I'm not. I'm just going, hey, this is me. If it works for you, hey, great. Let's stay and consume an old-fashioned and tell an inappropriate joke. But if not, you know enough about me from what I presented you to to be able to make an educated decision as to whether or not you want me in your circle. And that helps with people that I coach. That helps with people that I speak from stage. That helps with podcasts. I guarantee you, guarantee you, there are people listening to this podcast that may have already turned off and gone, you know, I don't like this guy. I don't like his vibe, his frequency, his tempo. This guy's not for me. And then there are other people that go, you know, I get this guy because he's just one of us because he's not trying to be anyone because we've all, and I've done this, we've all tried to be someone we're not at some point in our life. And that's usually when we've ended up getting the relationships that we can't relate to. How can you build a relationship when you start off by being someone you're not? So I literally will travel the planet for start, shockingly to a lot of people. I don't have a car. I rode motorcycles when I was a kid. Now I'm very fortunate. I have a collection of motorcycles and I will turn up to people with a crash helmet in my hand, stick it on the desk and go, right, what are we going to do? What are we going to fix? And I just show up as me. So what is the real deal? The upsetting thing about that statement, and I say upsetting, is that it's so noticed that you make something of it when really shouldn't we be in a world where everyone's real, mm. where all of the, the shields and the armor's down, and we all just go, hey, this is me, flaws and all. I can't spell for shit, but I can solve your problem. And at the end of the day, if you can solve someone's problem, they don't care what you look like. They don't care how you sound. They care that you are the solution to that problem. And when I was a Mr. Fix-It, I was providing you with better cocktail stories. I was providing you with access. I was the solution to your access. Now, I'm teaching, I'm training, I'm coaching. I'm the solution to maybe the hurdles that you've built. Maybe to the revelation of the brand that you should be by getting rid of all the confusion that you've created. I'm going to call it as I see it. I'm going to do what you need to do. And I'm going to help you be the person that you need to be. A friend of mine once said, the definition of hell is to meet the man or woman you could have been. Mm. And I'm there to make sure that you show up as that person and not as the other. Yeah, I really want to pick up on that and something you said earlier, which was you said, uh, you know, there's people listening that will resonate and feel like, oh, this guy's one of us. Yeah. I think more so, Steve, there are people who are listening and it will resonate not because you're one of them, but because they want to be more like you. They want to be more authentic. They want to feel the confidence and the ability to be more of who they are. And 
to uh, be more genuine, I guess you could say. Like they, they just, they want to be able to do that, but they're a little worried. Oh, well, what will people think? What if people don't like me? Or what if like this backfires and it hurts my business or it hurts my ability to work with people or whatever it might be? Like they're worried about it in some way, but they want to be like you, man. Well, they want to be like them. And one of the things that I realized years ago, and of course, you know, we learn all of this through education and through experiences. And most of our experiences that benefit us the most are the ones that go wrong. When we lose money, we know how to make money. When we have bad relationships, it teaches us what we need to focus on with good relationships. So most of our education comes from those moments that went to shit. I realized I was spending a lot of effort and energy trying to, you know, be a little bit more articulate with my words and maybe trying to be a little bit more presentable because I grew up knowing that I was a big, ugly fella. And if I'm the kind of guy that you bump into walking down the street, you may go, oh, shit, you know, is he going to mug me? I realized that, yet I realized I was trying to work with some of the most powerful people in the planet. And if they looked at me, I'm not the kind of guy you'd look at and voluntarily give your black card to. Mm-hmm. But again, if I was the solution to your problem, then that became the focus. And when I started just relaxing on me and focusing more on you, do you know what happened? I realized that it took zero effort and energy to be me. Mm. I didn't have to try. And here's the dumb thing. And I agree with you. There's a lot of people out there going, well, you know, it's okay for you, Steve. But in my business, I have to be a certain way. Bullshit. There are billions of people, not tens of thousands, billions of people around. How many of those do you need to be successful? And if you tried being you, how many of those would you now allow to like you? Hmm. You see, if I start speaking the Queen's English and wearing a suit and an overpriced watch and maybe spanking out my credit cards to buy a fancy car. I'm trying to impress you. I don't want to be impressed. I want to connect. And in today's world of technology, where we can connect with people faster and better than we have ever been able to do, we're more disconnected. But what is the one thing that COVID told us we were in dire need of? It was a connection. Connection. Now, I can't connect with you if I don't know who you are or if you're pretending to be somebody else. You are going to put a hurdle in between us. Yet if I know your views are this, you like this music, you prefer your dog over people. If I know all of those things, you're now allowing me to go, do you know I'm with you? I love dogs. Do you know your jokes are crap? I can't tell a joke either. We're right on the same... Do you know you can't dance to save your life? I'm the same way. We're get on great. But you ama- you'll, you'll be amazed at how many of your flaws are actually your attractions. Hmm. And so I, I demand you, maybe just for the next phone call, don't be, don't be somebody that you think they want to hear. Be you. Hmm. You'll find that you've got more energy in doing so and you will, I guarantee, get a deeper connection because you can only get a deep connection with someone 
when you start showing up as you. And how are you supposed to stand out in business if the first thing you do is fit in? Makes no sense. Hmm. Profound question. Standing out versus fitting in. Yeah, yeah. I went to a, uh, I got, I got one of my gigs was at an attorney's convention. That was a really, it was a cool event. But the, one of the things that they taught me, uh, they asked me to talk about was branding and how to stand out in your marketplace. And so I said to him, I said, okay, can I ask everyone, first of all, everyone with a gray suit, blue shirt, or red tie, can you please stand up? Two-thirds of the room stood up. And I said, how can I talk to you about branding and standing out when the first thing you do is wear a uniform and fit in? You know, if you want to stand out, the first thing you've got to do is stand up. And if you look around and everyone's, and you can do that in real estate, you can do that in so many industries. And I'm not saying turn up in a bloody Hawaiian shirt, but turn up as you. Take your personality with you and display your personality with me. I wear a black T-shirt. I've always worn a black T-shirt. And the reason I wear a black T-shirt is I don't have to think when I go to my cupboard. You know, <laughs> every six months, a and this is no joke, I have it set with Amazon. Every six months, a pile of black T-shirts turn up because they fade in the wash. Everyone knows that. A pile of black T-shirts turn up. I go to my wardrobe, I pull them all off, and they go in the garage to polish the bikes, and I have a whole new bunch of black T-shirts. <laughs> I have no thought or necessity to think when I'm wearing my daily uniform, if you want. But you really need to start looking at, are you being looked at like everybody else? And what can you do? Maybe it's a little bit of jewelry. Maybe it's a, a funky uh, tie. A friend of mine loves vintage T-shirts. And so every time he turns up at a meeting, he's wearing like an Atari T-shirt or something from the, the uh, concert shirts from the, from the 80s and the 90s. He loves that, but it's his thing. And that's the good thing. So look in the mirror. Would you do business with you? That's huh. the question. Who knows, Steve, where those uh, polishing cloths in the garage have been? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Hey, so to this end of... Uh, trying to find out more about yourself, accentuate more of the things about yourself. You write about this self-audit where mm. you, your likes, your dislikes, your principles. Can you speak to that a little bit for us? Yeah, we do so much for our clients. We do so much, and especially in your industry as well, we're doing so much to help them stand out, be better at that business. But when do you ever run that audit on yourself? When do you literally set an appointment in your calendar to review you? Now, it's quite often the hardest conversation you're going to have. But literally in mind, do you know the funny thing is? Mine's next Thursday. My six-month audit is next Thursday at 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to ride out. I'm going to have breakfast. And I am going to audit myself. Hmm. How am I showing up? What is my brand integrity? What are my standards? What are my likes? What are my dislikes? What do I dislike but I'm doing? You know, what should I not be doing? You know, and those kind of things. And I will run it through and I will run the audit on myself. And it all comes down to one word. Your standards. What do your standards say about you? Now, 
I decided a long time ago, and it's part of my audit, to not settle. I'm getting older and with age, you know, a lot of beautiful things come across. And I decided I'm not, you don't have to be rude. But if you order a cup of coffee and it's lukewarm, just go, excuse me, I'm sorry, but can I wait for a fresh cup? You know, and they'll be like, certainly, your standards will change. I'm, everyone knows I love an old fashioned. Now, the old fashioned's only got like about bloody three or four ingredients, one of them being ice. It's not that hard to make a good old fashioned, but it seems really easy to make a bad one. And I've been places before where they've started putting so much fruit in it. It's like I'm getting a bloody fruit bowl, not, a, not an old-fashioned. And I'll literally look at it, and I'll be like, excuse me, I'm sorry, but that's not how I like my old-fashions. Can I ask it to be redone, or is there someone else here that maybe has a bit more experience with doing an old-fashioned? And I've never been greeted with hostility when I've asked to do that. But you know, my standards are mine, and everyone wants to be Yours. I had a client of mine where he was traveling through Burbank. So we met just outside Burbank. We went to a restaurant. I was on a motorbike, so I couldn't have a drink. And he went, I'm going to have an old fashioned just in lieu of you. You know, and I went, oh, knock yourself out. And he ordered this old fashioned and it turned up with instead of the usual big ice cube, loads of little shards as though he's ordered a, a Pepsi. And he looked at it and there was a massive half piece of orange hanging out of it like it was some kind of, I don't know, cocktail on the beach. And I looked at this abomination of an old fashioned and I looked at him and I said to him, what you do in the next two minutes is going to dictate what you accept for the day. Mm. Make it, make your move. And he looked at this old fashioned and he turned around to the bartender and it was a different bartender who said, excuse me, I, I, I'm sorry and I don't want to make an issue. But this is not how I like an old-fashioned. And the bartender looked and he went, that's an old-fashioned? He said, we've got a new guy here. He obviously, I, let me do one for you. And he <laughs> took it away and he did it and it was perfect. And I went, you happy? And he went, yes, I am. And I'll give you another story. I run these events called speakeasies. They're like my private masterminds around America. And a client of mine that comes to these speakeasies, cool dude, loves trend, loves sneakers. And he buys these sneakers that are just so expensive, so cool. And I actually said to him one day, I really like those sneakers. And he told me where to put, and I ended up buying a pair of sneakers because I liked the style of sneakers he had. So one day I was actually flying through and I was flying through Texas and he was in Texas. And I said, oh, you know, I've got this freaking layover, so I'm just going to crash for the night, you know. And he's like, come and have drinks with me and my boys. I'd love to introduce you to my mates. So I turned up at this bar and it was a local bar, nothing fancy by any means. And I turned up at this bar and there he was in these shitty sneakers. <laughs> I sat down with him and I was looking at these sneakers and I was talking to his boys and we were getting to know each other and we went up to the bar to get a drink and I said to him what the fuck are you wearing <laughs> I said I've never seen you like this and he looked terribly embarrassed and he went yeah I knew it I knew it he said as soon as I he said I was so excited about being able to hang out with you and introduce you with my friends he said, but I, I realized that I had dressed for them. And I said, what do you mean? I said, you dress like this. He said, every time we go out, this is what I wear. 
And I said, you're a sneaker king. You know, we know about your sneakers. I bought sneakers because of I've seen you wearing them. He said, I said, you, why? He said, I, I, I don't want to kind of like be laughed at or have the guys kind of. And I went, oh, hang on a minute. So you're basing your standards on them. You're settling to their level. I mm. said, don't you think if you increased your standards or to this point, exposed your standards, they may actually want to play to you. So he contacted me about, I don't know, about three weeks later. And he said, I wore a pair of my sneakers to the bar with my boys. He said, and they took the piss out of me. I said, they're going to, no one likes change. He said, the following week, I wore a different pair of sneakers. He said, two things happened. One, they had all slightly changed that look. But two, one of my boys, and he mentioned his name that I'd met, he said, asked me where I got those sneakers hmm. and where he could get. You see, what happens is when you change your standards nine times out of ten, you're changing it down. Why? Because it's easy down there. But when you hold your standards high, hey, the flies are too cold. This coffee's too weak. That's not how you make an old-fashioned. Everything else in your life changes, including the circle that you associate with. Mm. And they will either rise up to your standards or you will change the table and you will end up going to a different location, associating with different people. And that's what you've got to do. Never second best your standards. And you can do that first off by doing an audit on what you will accept. Wow. So profound. And anybody can think about where in life they're accepting an inferior old fashioned or where yeah. in life they're wearing shitty sneakers. Right. And, and, and just think about those stories and, and consider how that applies. I think, I think that's really good. I like it. I like it. Steve, let's talk about your book, your second book, I guess it is. You, yeah. you mentioned you got another one coming out soon, but yeah. your second book is called go for stupid, the art of achieving ridiculous goals to tell us about the title. First of all, well, the title actually was, is, I think about 18 years old. And when I was trying to look after my clients, I realized that if I gave them what they asked for, I was just completing a transaction. So my job was to take what they requested and see how I could go ridiculous with it. Yeah. Now, here's a daft thing with you. If I say to you, hey, how's your business doing? Let's go for the impossible. Let's break through that impossible. Let's, let's make impossible possible. Well, when you start talking like that, and I'm looking at your mouth now, you get very gritty, don't you? It's like you're going into battle. You're very rigid and you're very angry and you're very fierce. But if I say to you, hey, what's your business goal? Let's make that goal stupid. Let's make that ridiculous. Let's have some fun with that. Mm. You become a child. And children are curious and they're creative. Now, all of a sudden, you start growing. So we would have a client going, hey, I want to I wanna get some really good tickets to go backstage and meet the rock band journey. All right. Well, how can we make that request stupid? How can we make that ridiculous? Well, we could take him backstage or we could put him on stage. Yes. You know, you want a dining experience in Florence? Well. We could send you to a cool restaurant or hell, we could shut down the Academia de Galleria 
make it a Thomas Crown moment and actually set you up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. That would be stupid. So we had this terminology. And look at your face now. You're smiling. Yeah. Don't you want to smile more? Would you rather smile or would you rather be gritty and fierce? So you do more when you gamify things. And Elon Musk is a, a pinnacle for gamifying everything. How can we do this? Let's play a game. How can we make these happen? Mm. So we had this saying, go for stupid. And we would literally sit around the table when I owned my concierge firm and we would rattle off requests and we'd go, okay, how can we make that stupid? And that's what we would say. And then this thing called COVID came around and I got pissed off and I get aggravated quite easily. I think aggravation is the fuel that gets me to move. And I couldn't believe in a time where we were spending more time with our family we could actually look at our business with no fear that our competitor was going to overtake us because they were in the same boat as us. For the first time in our life, we hit the pause button. And I was like, this is a tremendous time for us not only to do an audit on our business, but to do an audit on our health, on our relationships, on our family. See, I knew I loved my kids and wife, but I didn't know how much I liked them. And I'm now spending 24 hours a day with them. That kind of cool. But what are we seeing on Facebook? We're going, oh, well, I finished watching The Sopranos. How else can I binge watch and waste my life? You know, (laughs) and I got really violent. And I started writing blogs and articles going, why are you doing this? You know, there are people out there that are doing this. Why are people not focusing on these hours that they've been given? Because bearing in mind, what's the one thing No one can buy or order on Amazon. It's time. Now, we had all the time in the world. We weren't traveling for travel. I wasn't on a plane. I wasn't having a meeting in Italy. I was at home from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed. And better still, anyone that I wanted to contact, they weren't speaking at a gala. They weren't performing at a concert in Madison Square Garden. They were at home. Yeah. I knew exactly where you were. You couldn't phone someone and get the secretary going, oh, sorry, he's on a place. Sorry, he's in a meeting. No, he's not. He's at home. I know he's at home because the, the country's got everyone on lockdown. I know where you are. Mm-hmm. And so it was a brilliant time. So I started writing these articles and people started saying, you should put this into a book. And I started doing that. And then I started looking at at a, at a time that we couldn't connect, we now bred the cancel culture and the gotcha society. So not only were we not able to connect with each other, we were actually frightened to communicate with them in case we said the wrong thing and got canceled. Mm-hmm. So I wrote the book on it and I started focusing on some clients and some very powerful people that went for different things, saw differently, acted differently, went for stupid goals and actually built up a structure to achieve them. So I put this book together. It got released last October, Go For Stupid. And here's a beautiful gift for you. It became bestseller in two hours. And so I did really well out of the book. It did really well. But I always hated, the second thing I hated from writing a book which I'd probably say is my most painful experience ever, doing an audio version. 
Mm. You basically stand in a studio the size of a portaloo, all these little rubber foam things poking at you, reading your book. It's painful. <laughs> so I thought to myself, I'm going to do something different. Of course, I live near Hollywood. So a friend of mine had a studio. I did a video series. Now I'm in a studio. And funny enough, I was actually holding an old fashioned through most of it. Now I'm reading the book. I'm no longer in a portaloo. They could scrape the audio and turn it into the audio book, which meant that I was left with the all 12 chapters of my book in video format. What the hell do I do with it? So about a month ago, we built up goforstupid.com, gave it away. Oh, nice. So if you, if you visit goforstupid.com, you can actually watch me read the book to you, all chapters. And all I ask you to do is do something with it. There's no hair products to sell you. There's no T-shirts. I haven't got any of that shit. Just watch it. A friend of mine said that it's really cool. You can get through it in like two hours if you're two times the, the speed. And he said, you can just get through the book and just hear all the nuggets. Watch me read it to you. Stick it on the computer while you're, while you're working and get the book for free. Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate hearing about that. We'll definitely make sure that everybody knows about that. Thank you. Uh, tell us about the three keys to a success mindset that you share in the book. Wow. Yeah. So I managed to have conversations with some of the most powerful people you know, some of the people you've never met in your life, spoken to the heads of the Pentagon, the heads of Harvard, the heads of Vatican. And, you know, it didn't matter if I was speaking to someone from Korea, Los Angeles, Russia, Tokyo, there was all these cultural differences. But when it came to the successful mindset, it basically came down to three things. One, they value relationships more than anybody else. But if you hire someone or you take someone into your relationship, it doesn't matter whether or not they're good at Excel spreadsheets or they can speak German. That can be trained. But if the culture of the relationship is not aligned with you, it's not going to work. So you've got to divide what they can do with who they are. And if who they are fits you, everything else can be taught. So they really focus better and more accurately on the person, the culture, and the relationship than the resume. That was the first thing that I noticed. The second time was the relationship to time. They know they can't make more time. When you have a conversation with Elon Musk or you have a conversation with the head of a Fortune 500 company, they don't care what you're watching on Netflix. They don't care what you had for dinner last night. They go, hey, well, what are you working on? And why do you think you can pull it off? And then how can I help that? You know, but actually, I know Johnny that may be able to help you with that. So they focus on time. When they're given an hour, they don't go, ah, I'm going to go and waste it. They go, what can I do with that time? Now, that doing with the time may be playing with the kids. It may be playing with the dog. It may be catching up on their old movie. But they actually assign that time to something that's going to be productive, whether it be to their business or to their mindset. Their relationship with time is better than a poor person's relationship with time. And they're the ones who want to binge watch it. Those are the two 
most important things that they actually come down to. But then on the third, they also come down with networking and opportunity and how they actually look at the world. And we spoke about that earlier with you get what you soak your head in. If you soak your head in negativity, you will react to negativity. If you soak it into opportunity, you become an opportunity and you can only see opportunity. Those are the main threes that they actually work on. And here's the thing. None of those mean that you've got to study. You could literally just adopt those three now and go, hey, I'm going to focus on people that have aligned with me and I'm going to react to time differently and I'm only going to consume opportunity. None of those need a big bank account. But don't be surprised if the big bank account comes along as a reaction to your action. You see, you don't get slimmer by buying a diet book. You get slimmer by taking the action. You don't get richer by staring at the bank account. You get richer by actioning something that's going to generate a healthy bank account. And if you stick to those three mindsets for successful people, everything else will become the reaction of you taking the action. And it's not going to be hard. Yeah, great stuff. And you say in the book, it's not about your IQ, it's about your I can. Every time, absolutely every time. Elon Musk knew nothing about cars. He knew nothing about banking. He knew nothing about the space industry. He was curious enough to attack it. Larry Page, Virgin, Richard Branson, all of these people that went out there to do something weren't educated because it didn't exist. But they were curious enough to question the norm and go, why do I need to accept that? And their education came through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And that I can, now let's be honest, a lot of those people are incredibly intelligent, but they're intelligent at stuff that wasn't even around before they invented it. So you've got to push. Your I can is way more important. There's people out there that have got phenomenal business ideas. But until you actually put it out there and do something with it, a half-baked concept is always going to succeed over a fantastic business plan with no action behind it. Yeah. And trial and error, Steve, you talk about the difference between failure and discovery. Yeah. As well. That's another concept that I learned from you that I thought was valuable. Every time, every time, you know, I've I've never failed in my life. I just became educated on what worked or didn't. And as I say, you know, you can look at your darkest moments and go, I learned a lot from that. And it's those moments of education and that leading. Again, that's another trait of successful people. They lean into failures to go, oh, what could I learn from that? Turn that failure into an education. Yeah. And a last concept that I, that I feel like I learned in in uh, studying your material was the idea of wrapping together passion and persistence. You put those two things together. And that rocket fuel. Yeah. I thought that was a great insight that you shared as well. Steve, what are you fired up about now? <laughs> Tell us about Sims Distillery, by the yeah, way. Yeah, you say fired up. I think the word is pissed off. Again, I get I get aggravated about things. And then I go, well, well, let me do it. I remember I remember chatting with Elon Musk once about PayPal. And he literally said to me, he said, I couldn't understand why it took six days to transfer money from one U.S. bank account to another U.S. bank account, when basically it was no more than an email of, of, of numbers. And so to get over that aggravation, he invented PayPal. 
And now, of course, we got Venmo, Zelle, and every other way to instantly transfer money. I wanted to get smarter. I wanted to get more impactful. Now, I'm, I'm 56 years old, so let's say I'm on the last chapters of my life. My son's 26, and he's on the first chapters of his life. So we started joining all of these masterminds and these clubs and these organizations to get that unfair advantage, only to join them to find out that an hour into joining, they were trying to upsell you into that platinum group or what well, I'd like to teach you this, but that's reserved for the for the A group. And I'm like, this is bullshit. I want a group where we support and challenge. I don't want cheerleaders. I don't want people on stage going, oh, you can be great. Well, let's be blunt. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're focusing on the wrong dynamic, the wrong avenue. So I wanted a group, a, a, a mastermind, for want of a better word, a community where people actually challenged and supported each other. Why are you doing this now? Let me see how I can help you. And so we thought, well, if we can't find it, let's build it. So we built Sims Distillery as a way of taking all of your parts and distilling them into a 100% proof where you can actually attack what you want to attack and be successful and be held accountable. We want you to voice what you're going for and then we want the community to help you get there and then celebrate that win so that you can actually fire your education of what went wrong back into the community to save us those scars. So Sims Distillery was born. It's been doing exceptionally well. And it's a community that people can apply. We don't charge you at the beginning. We ask you to apply. We vet your application. Your credit card going through is not the the deciding factor on you becoming a member. We want members before we want to know whether or not you can afford to be there. That's just that's just irrelevant to us. So that is what's really exciting us at the moment, building up a community of creative disruptors ready to do things differently. Awesome. I love it. And where can people follow you or learn more about you, Steve? Well, simsdistillery.com is the community that we just spoke about. Uh, goforstupid.com is where they can get the book for free of charge. Or you can go to Steve D. Sims. Don't forget the D for dashing, and there's only one M in Sims. Steve D. Sims, Instagram, Twitter, threads, LinkedIn, wherever you get your social, probably more active on Instagram. But stevedsims.com is the website that tells you everything about me. And you can find me, stalk me, lurk me, everything's on there. Awesome. Hey, Steve, this has been great. A lot of profound information, a lot of great inspiration as well. I've super enjoyed being able to talk to you and meet you here today. Thanks so much. Cheers, pal. Thanks for doing what you're doing. All right. That was Steve Sims, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. I love how Steve got into sales as one of his early opportunities in life. And yet he realized that what he was doing was just merely transactional. And what he needed to do was learn how to create relationships, how to be in the right room around the right people. And that through that process, he began to see things differently, right? He talked about that whole idea of how we see things differently. We see life as opportunity. And in that process, how can you become a solution as you think about the opportunities that exist around you? Love that he discussed the importance of clarity and showing up as me, right? 
a little bit different from the idea of authenticity, but the idea of clarity and the self audit. What are your likes? What are your dislikes? What are your principles? What's most important to you? What are your standards? And then, of course, the concept of go for stupid is the idea of becoming a child when thinking of what is possible. Children have this endless ability to envision what they could do, what could be possible, endless imagination, and a playful spirit in going for the things that they want. How can we bring more of that into our life? Check out the book, Go for Stupid. Of course, you can get the video of it for free as Steve referenced at goforstupid.com. Check out Sims Distillery if you want to follow Steve or be a part of his mastermind and follow him and the stuff that he puts out. I know following him on social media has been a cool thing. I did that a number of years ago when I saw that he was connected with John Rulin. And that is how we ended up connecting for this conversation today. So I would encourage you to make sure you're following Steve and all the other amazing people that we have featured here on this podcast. All right. Thank you so much for listening today. Hope you had fun getting to know Steve Sims. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 